This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you very much. It's a great honor and joy for me to be here at the University of Virginia. What I'd like to do is to begin with a very brief passage from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is from chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I shall say it again, rejoice. Your kindness should be known to all. The Lord is near. Our Lady, cause of our joy, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. St. Francis of Assisi, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I thought to begin this talk on a theology of joy that we would be uh, very uh, well served if we go to St. Francis of Assisi, since today is his feast day. And in the collection known as the Little Flowers of St. Francis, there's a wonderful story about perfect joy. It's a little long, but I want you to get into this framework of what perfect joy is and how it may alter some opinions about what joy is. So this is from the Little Flowers. St. Francis explains perfect joy, and he does so as he's walking along with another Franciscan by the name of Brother Leo. On a cold winter's day, St. Francis walked with Brother Leo from Perugia to the Porciuncula. Because of their poverty, they suffered much in the cold. At one point, St. Francis said to Brother Leo, if God desired that the Friars Minor should serve as a great example of holiness to all people in all lands, please write down that this would not be perfect joy. At some point later in their journey, St. Francis said to Brother Leo, if the Friars Minor could make the lame walk, if we could straighten the crooked, if we could chase away demons, if we could give sight to the blind and speech to the dumb, and even if we could raise the dead after four days, please write down and note carefully that this would not be perfect joy. Soon after, St. Francis said to Brother Leo, if the Friars Minor could speak every language, if they knew everything about science, if they could explain all the scriptures, if they could predict the future and reveal the secrets of every soul, please write down and note carefully that this would not be perfect joy. After a few more steps, St. Francis cried, Brother Leo, little one of God, if the Friars Minor could sing like angels, if they could explain the movements of the stars, if they knew everything about all animals, birds, fish, plants, stones, trees, and all people, please write down a note carefully that this would not be perfect joy. Finally, St. Francis cried again, Brother Leo, if the Friars Minor could preach and thus convert every person to faith in Christ, please write down a note carefully that even this is not perfect joy. When this manner of discourse lasted for several miles, Brother Leo, who had been thinking about these sayings, asked, Father Francis, I pray that you will teach me about perfect joy. St. Francis answered, If we arrive at the Portiuncula, and if we are drenched with rain and trembling with cold, covered in mud, and exhausted from hunger, and if we knock on the convent gate, and if we are not recognized by the porter, and if he tells us that we are impostors who seek to deceive the world and steal from the poor, and if he refuses to open the gate, and if he leaves us outside exposed to the rain and snow, suffering from cold and hunger, then, if we embrace the injustice, cruelty, and contempt with patience, without complaining, and if we believe in faith, love, and humility that the porter knew us, but was told by God to reject us, then, my dear brother Leo, please write down and note carefully that this is perfect joy. St. Francis then said, Brother Leo, if we knock again and if the porter drives us away with curses and blows, and if he accuses us of robbery and other crimes, and if we embrace this with patience without complaining, and if we believe in faith, love, and humility that the porter knew us but was told by God to reject us again, then, my brother dear Leo, please write down and note carefully that this is perfect joy. St. Francis said once more, If urged by cold and hunger we knock again, if we call again to the porter, if we plead to him with many tears to open the gate and to give us shelter out of love for God, and if he returns more angry than ever, and if he calls us annoying rascals and beats us with a knotted stick, and if he throws us to the ground, rolls us in the snow, and beats us again with a knotted stick, 
And if we bear these injuries with patience, without complaining, and if we think upon the sufferings of our blessed crucified Lord, then, most beloved brother Leo, please write down and note carefully that this finally is perfect joy. St. Francis said, Brother Leo, please listen to me. Above all gifts of the Holy Spirit that Christ Jesus gives to his friends is the grace to overcome oneself, to accept willingly, out of love for him, all contempt, all discomfort, all injury, and all suffering. In this and all other gifts, we ourselves should not boast, because all things are gifts from God. Remember the words of St. Paul, What do you have that you did not receive from God? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as it were not a gift? But in the cross of afflictions and sufferings, we truly can glory because, as St. Paul says again, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Amen. That is St. Francis's talk on perfect joy. Now, what I'd like for us to do is to see how Christian this is and to put it within the context of the New Testament. So what St. Francis is doing is precisely telling us what we do read in the New Testament and then to be able to accept it by the grace of God. The letter of James chapter one says, consider all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. 1 Peter chapter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised that a trial by fire is occurring among you as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice exultantly. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is fulfilling, is living out, is making actual our Lord's Beatitudes. You can go back to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew's account of the Gospel. And at the conclusion of the Beatitudes, our Lord Jesus preaches, Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, given this, I want us to return to St. Thomas Aquinas' theology of joy, and then to be able to see how, uh, how this is supported, and for us then to go more deeply into the understanding of what joy is meant to be. After we look at St. Thomas's theology, we're going to go to St. Paul VI. Uh, so St. Paul VI in 1975 uh, wrote a beautiful document on Christian joy, and I'd like for us to consider that. And then afterwards, we'll have some time for questions and answers, discussion, comments. So what is joy? St. Thomas Aquinas, in the part of the Summa called the first part of the second part, or in Latin, the prima secundae, talks about that, uh, that human beings as rational animals have different kinds of passions. And there are various passions that we then share with the non-rational animals. Right, so when you think about pleasures and delights, you know, you can consider a dog. Can't you see a dog delighting in dog food? Can't you see a dog delighting when, uh, when the one uh, that, um, in terms of seeing, seeing someone that the dog loves, recognizes and loves? Okay, that dog then is expressing a pleasure or a delight, and you can see it on different levels. Say food, or actually in terms of recognizing uh, the owner, okay, recognizing. St. Thomas wants to differentiate joy, and in Latin, the word is gaudium, or also there's a synonym, synonym laetitia. St. Thomas wants to show that this gaudium, or laetitia, is among the different kinds of delights, okay? So in terms of a delectatio, can be translated as a delight or a pleasure, but the difference about joy is that joy is proper to a rational animal here on this earth. That joy is something spiritual. And, and so it's a kind of delight or pleasure, but it's one that only 
a spirit can have. So God is most joyful. And I love how when St. Thomas describes what God is like in the Prima Pars treatise on the divine essence, he concludes that part of it with God's happiness, his joy, his beatitude. Okay, because God is supremely happy, supremely joyful. And then you can, uh, and, but God has no passions, okay? Or the angels. The angels are joyful creatures. Those angels in heaven see God face to face. There's nothing animalish about these angels. We who are rational animals have not only the delights of other animals, we have spiritual joy. And it's a movement of the will, so of that rational will, and it may have a bodily effect. Okay, so you can think about sometimes when we are rejoicing, we let it show, right? You know, that people can see that one, she's happy, okay, she's joyful. Uh, and that you can't really control it. That it's something in terms of that you can have an overflow into the body precisely because of a spiritual joy. That can happen, and it does happen. So in terms of smiling uh, and, and letting that influence our actions and how wonderful and beautiful that is. Now, joy then is when we in our spirit, okay, or in our mind, know that the good that we love is possessed, okay? So that there's something good, something very good, and that we have it, or that that which we love is there, is continuing in existence in a, in a particular way. When we have a sorrow, the good that we love is absent or is being attacked. Okay, so to put this in philosophical terms, what's the difference between joy and sorrow? Joy is when you know, when you perceive that the good that you have, the, the, the good that you cherish, you have it, and that, and that it continues in some way. Sorrow is when you perceive, when you actually know that the good that you cherish is absent or is being attacked. Okay, so in terms of Joy and sorrow. So this is where in terms of just as joy is a kind of delight that's proper to, to spirit or um, to us who are rational in terms of here on this earth, well, sorrow is a sort of pain. You know, the, the, that dog that was so happy about dog food and, and seeing you, well, the dog also has pain too, uh, different kinds of pain. But a dog, properly speaking, for St. Thomas's way of differentiating, does not have sorrow in the true sense, right? So this is where, in terms of just setting this up, that joy is different from other kinds of delights, just as sorrow is different from other sorts of, of pains. Now, notice how it's about you realize it. There are all sorts of goods that we can have, and we don't really realize it. If you have a wonderful good, but you're not really attentive to that wonderful good, you're not going to be joyful about it. Makes sense, right? So that you need to have your heart, your mind, on that which is good. If your, mar if your heart, your mind, is thinking about something else, then it's not going to have joy. All right, now, in terms of different kinds of goods, there are various kinds of goods. Ultimately, the highest kind of good is off the charts, because that's God. That he is the supreme good. And St. Augustine uses the Latin verb frui, enjoy, as that kind of love which is proper to God. Because when we enjoy, properly speaking, we want to cling to that good for its own sake. To cling to that good for its own sake. Ultimately then, the only one that we are to enjoy is God, because we cling to him for his own sake, or at least that is what we are meant to do. The other Latin verb is uti, to use. Everything else then is to be used for the sake of that which is to be enjoyed. So you have then, in terms of all sorts of goods, 
you have the supreme good, God, who is to be enjoyed, and so that we cling to him for his own sake. And so you think then about the enjoying. And then to be able to consider the lower goods, which should not be confused with the one supreme good who is God. If you, if you cling to that which is creaturely and find your enjoyment simply on some creature, you've actually rendered that creature something to the effect of being your God. All right, so this is where in terms of just thinking about things uh, to use and to enjoy. If you have money, okay, like sometimes people, you know, people love money. Well, you can't eat money, okay? You, you can't, uh, money is precisely eminently usable. Okay, money is to be used for other things. And, uh, and as I said, money can't buy me love. Well, God is not to be used. Uh, but some people, like in terms of a light, you know, God is light. Some people will try to use God like they use a light in a, in a room. So they turn the light on in the room to find what they really want. Scary. But various people will try to use God to find what they really want. Joy, properly speaking, is when we accept God on his terms and accept everything else on his terms. Among all creatures, the human being has a special place. And that's why we can enjoy others in the Lord. That in terms of the double love commandment, we can love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself for the sake of God. Because when God wants us, just as God gives us himself entirely, totally, he doesn't hold anything back of himself, we then are to give ourselves totally to God so that all of our loves, all of our joys are meant to be in God and that God then unites our life, the totality of our life. So St. Augustine exposes this and St. Thomas Aquinas continues it. And St. Thomas also will talk about joy as a particular interior effect of charity. Okay, so charity, what's charity? It's that type of love which is actually coming from God and uniting us to God. That uh, Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. And so then to be able to consider that love, when it's that charity, when it's the theological virtue infused in us by God, lifts us up and, is able, and makes us able to love God completely. That is what charity aims at, to be able to have that, that perfect love, and then joy comes from that. Okay? Uh, so joy is an interior effect of charity. And during this life on earth, remember how we are rational animals? There are all sorts of things that uh, can impede us from feeling the, the, um, a complete joy. So there is something about a pureness of joy when it's only concerning about God. But during this life on earth, there are admixtures, okay? So there are different kinds of mixtures and blendings that occur and how we then can have sorrows. And actually, it's proper in this Christian life to have sorrow. And that joy then does not simply cancel out all the sorrows, but sustains the sorrows. What do I mean? Well, go back to that Philippians passage. Rejoice in the Lord always. I shall say it again, rejoice. Your kindness should be known to all. The Lord is near. This is where, in terms of a continuity, that the joy can be such to allow us to realize that during this life on earth, we're going through the valley of tears. This is what we say when we pray the Hail Holy Queen, mourning and weeping this valley of tears. The joy can sustain us so as to be able to see how actually the good that we love, God, well, all sorts of sins show you know, in our lives, in the lives of others in the world, that, that sin in a special way tells us about that this life on earth 
is a life of mixture. And we're to have sorrow. Okay? So, and this is why also in terms of the, the mysteries of the rosary, we're celebrating this month of October, which is traditionally dedicated to Our Lady of the Rosary, how you have the joyful mysteries. And it's that first joyful, first joyful mystery, the angelic greeting, that sustains the entirety of the rosary. Okay? Even when you're praying the fifth sorrowful mystery, uh, the crucifixion of our Lord, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. While you're praying through the sorrows, it's the joy that allows you to embrace the cross. St. Francis knew this in a particular way and knew that the cross then purifies our hearts so that way we may be completely devoted to God. Pick up your cross and follow me. Joy then is not merely something of this world. It is something of God an effect of God's love poured into our hearts that transforms us so that way we may belong completely to him no matter what happens on this earth. Because we are loved by God. And then when we have this in mind, when we cherish it, when we realize it, there can, by God's grace, be a constancy of an inner joy even when there are so many other problems. St. Thomas talks about this in his commentary on Philippians chapter 4. So here's a selection. St. Thomas says, Anyone who desires to make progress must have spiritual joy. A cheerful heart is a good medicine, Proverbs 17. Okay, so anybody who desires progress must have spiritual joy. Okay, if you want to grow in the spiritual life, ask for that gift of joy to be able to to do what needs to be done so that way you can experience the love of God in a radically deep way. The Apostle Paul touches on four characteristics of joy precisely in this passage from Philippians 4. First, it must be right. This happens when it concerns the proper good of man, which is not something created but God. So the psalm, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Right, so that the good that is about is God himself, the supreme good. Right, so therefore it is right when there is joy in the Lord. Hence he says, rejoice in the Lord. Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Secondly, it is continuous. Hence he says, always. Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, rejoice always. This happens when it is not interrupted by sin, for then it is continuous. Okay, because sin is, you know, uh, as it said, uh, uh, the only sadness is not to be a saint. Right? So, so sin interrupts spiritual joy. Sin puts a stop to spiritual joy. But sometimes it is interrupted by temporal sadness, which signifies the imperfection of joy. For when a person rejoices perfectly, his joy is not interrupted because he cares little about things that do not last. That is why he says always. Thirdly, it should be multiple for if you rejoice in God, you will rejoice in his incarnation. Luke chapter 2, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And St. Thomas continues, in your own activity. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous. Proverbs 21. And in your contemplation from Wisdom 8, companionship with her has no bitterness. Again, if you rejoice in your good, you will be prepared to rejoice in the good of others. If you rejoice in the present, you are prepared to rejoice in the future. Hence, he says, again, I'll say rejoice. So the multiplicity of joy. There's so much, so many reasons to rejoice. Do you realize this? Okay, so, so in terms of the, a theology of spiritual joy, that God is everywhere. And God saves us. God loves us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the trials. He loves us. His grace is there. Joy allows us to see it and to cherish God for who he is. Fourthly, it should be moderate and not flooded with pleasures, as happens in worldly joy. Hence, he says, let all men know your forbearance. Okay, so in the New American Bible, it's kindness. Uh, but the Greek word does mean in terms of forbearance or, or um, a fittingness, uh, a moderateness. 
as if to say, your joy should be so moderated that it will not degenerate into dissoluteness. Judith 16, the people continued feasting Jerusalem before the sanctuary. And he says, let all men know, as if to say, your life should be so moderate in externals that it offends the gaze of no one, for that would hinder your manner of life. Now, just one more point from St. Thomas's commentary on the letter to the Philippians. He goes to that line, the Lord is at hand. And St. Thomas says he touches on the cause of joy. The Lord is at hand. You know, why do we call Our Lady cause of our joy? Because she brings us Jesus. She's the one who's the cause of our joy because she especially shows us the Lord is at hand. For a man rejoices when his friend is near. The Lord is near with the presence of his majesty. Acts 17, he's not far from each one of us. He's also near in his flesh. Ephesians chapter 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near in the blood of Christ. Again, he is near through indwelling grace. So draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And by his clemency and hearing, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. And by his reward, its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. All right, so, so that helps you in terms of having a proper Thomistic understanding of joy. Now, in terms of the magisterium of the church, Pope Francis has repeatedly taught about joy. And, and so in different ways, we uh, can read what Pope Francis has been saying about joy for the past several years. I want to share with you that during the 1995-96 um, year, uh, I must have needed a little boost because a wise priest told me that I should read Paul VI, Gaudete and Domino. So St. Paul VI in 1974, wrote this document, uh, Gaudete and Domino, so in Latin, Rejoice in the Lord, and it's also known as Unchristian Joy. St. Paul VI knows that we need joy. We need joy. And just think about what he says back in 1975 and the significance of it now. St. Paul VI says, The experience of finiteness felt by each generation in its term, obliges one to acknowledge and to plumb the immense gap that always exists between reality and the desire for the infinite. This paradox and this difficulty in attaining joy seem to us particularly acute today. This is the reason for our message. Technological society has succeeded in multiplying the opportunities for pleasure, but it has great difficulty in generating joy. For joy comes from another source. It is spiritual. Money, comfort, hygiene, and material security are often not lacking, and yet boredom, depression, and sadness unhappily remain the lot of many. These feelings sometimes go as far as anguish and despair, which apparent carefreeness, the frenzies of present good fortune, and artificial paradises cannot assuage. Do people perhaps feel helpless to dominate industrial progress to plan society in a human way? Does the future perhaps seem too uncertain? human life too threatened? Or is it not perhaps a matter of loneliness, of an unsatisfied thirst for love and for someone's presence, of an ill-defined emptiness? On the contrary, in many regions and sometimes in our midst, the sum of physical and moral sufferings weighs heavily. So many starving people, so many victims of fruitless combat, so many people torn from their homes. These miseries are perhaps not deeper than those of the past, but they have taken on a worldwide dimension. They are better known, reported by the mass media, at least as much as the events of good fortune, and they overwhelm people's minds. Often there seems to be no adequate human solution to them. I mean, think about what Paul VI was saying. You know, these things overwhelm people's minds. You, um, this is going on so much today. People are overwhelmed by the sadness by the evil, uh, by the injustice, uh, by absurdity. What is, what is to be done? What can we do? St. Paul, Paul VI continues, this situation nevertheless cannot hinder us from speaking about joy and hoping for joy. It is indeed in the midst of their distress that our fellow men need to know joy, to hear its song. We sympathize profoundly with those over whom poverty and sufferings of every sort cast a veil of sadness. We are thinking in particular of those who are without means, without help, without friendship. 
those who see their human hopes annihilated. More than ever, they are present in our prayers and our affection. We do not wish to overwhelm anyone. On the contrary, we are looking for the remedies capable of bringing light. St. Paul VI names three kinds of remedies. The first is to work to bring relief to people. You know people who suffer, who don't have joy? Work to bring relief to them. Two, appreciating natural human joys. Okay, there are all sorts of little joys, little pick-me-ups, just to be able to recognize how God is present as creator, um, as the provident Lord, who can give people a little boost. You know, when you notice something beautiful, something good, to be able to obtain a little natural joy from that. And ultimately, and most importantly, finding spiritual joy in the Lord. St. Paul VI continues, but the theme of our exhortation is situated on still another level. For the problem seems to be above all of the spiritual order. It is man and his soul who finds himself without the means to take on himself the sufferings and miseries of our time. These sufferings and miseries crush him all the more to the extent that the meaning of life escapes him and that he's no longer sure of himself or his transcendent calling and destiny. He has desacralized the universe and now he is desacralizing humanity. He has at times cut the vital link that joined him to God. Hope and the value of individuals are no longer sufficiently ensured. God seems to him abstract and useless. Without his being able to express it, God's silence weighs heavily on him. Yes, cold and darkness are first in the heart of the man who knows sadness. And then St. Paul VI recalls St. Augustine's words near the very first words of of Augustine's Confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. St. Paul comments, it is therefore by becoming more present to God, by turning away from sin, that man can truly enter into spiritual joy. Turning away from sin and allowing us, allowing ourselves to accept God's love he loves us without measure. To be able to appreciate that, to cling to God for his own sake, to enjoy him. Do you enjoy God? That, in a sense, is the question for the entirety of our lives. Do you enjoy God? Because that's what heaven is. An utter enjoyment of God for who he is. To see him face to face, where there, there will be no more crying or tears, wailing or pain. During this life on earth, when we have the wailing, the tears, when we are mourning and weeping in this valley of tears, now is the time to accept that cross and to enjoy God. Rejoice in the Lord always. I shall say it again, rejoice. Your kindness should be known to all. The Lord is near. Thank you. So we have time for comments and questions. Yes. I had a question about the joyful mysteries. Yes. Especially the fifth joyful mystery which we proclaim is the lost and finding of Jesus. That's right. It's not just the finding of Jesus, but losing and finding That's right. And I was wondering if you could clarify is the whole entire mystery a joyful one or is it like happening? Great, thank you. So in terms of the fifth joyful mystery, which is typically known as the finding of the Lord in the temple or the finding of the child Jesus in the temple, it's also one of the seven sorrows of Our Lady, okay? Because before there's a finding, there's a losing. And this is where, in terms of, if you think about each of the five joyful mysteries, you'll find a sorrow there. And, uh, and I highly recommend, when you are going through a time of sorrow, pray the joyful mysteries with Our Lady, okay? So in terms of thinking with Our Lady about what is happening in salvation, 
All right, so the first joyful mystery, uh, the angel Gabriel says rejoice. Uh, uh, the word hail comes from the Greek word chaira. So rejoice, uh, um, uh, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Right? What, what is, what is, does Mary go, yay, absolutely, ah. No, she's greatly troubled at what the, she, she's greatly troubled. So then to be able to see how she's greatly troubled by this, and then she, at the end of that scene, she says, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. She's expressing what her son would teach us in thy will be done, and what he lives out in the agony in the garden. So when you think about that first joyful mystery, you can consider the sorrow that is also there because, because she's giving us the Savior who came to save us from our sins especially in this passion. You know, the second joyful mystery in terms of how Elizabeth is in need. Elizabeth is the older kinswoman who is in need, and so Our Lady then rushes to her. Well, think about the sorrow there, and then the Magnificat. Um, he has cast down the mighty from the thrones and has lifted up the lowly. Do you see that everywhere in the world? Do you see the mighty being cast down from, from the thrones and, and the lowly lifted up? I don't always see that. In a sense, it shows us how this is an eschatological triumph and, and how there's still sorrow here because her prophecy of the Magnificat is still being played out. You know, the third joyful mystery. Uh, well, where was Jesus placed? Oh, he was placed in a manger, in a feeding trough, because there was no room for him in the inn. You know, the sorrow there. And then also, so many times people will have a pressure to feel great about Christmas, and actually they're sad and, and sorrowful. Or the fourth joyful mystery in terms of the sacrifice of the animals, which, um, which foretells, in some sense, the sacrifice of Jesus, that Mary and Joseph give their son over in this place of sacrifice. And then Simeon prophesies, a sword of sorrow will pierce your heart, and the thoughts of many will be laid bare. So all of those joyful mysteries, and then you get to the fifth mystery, where they lose Jesus for three days. It's a way of foreshadowing the death of our Lord and his resurrection, the finding again. So this is why, like in terms of this life on earth, um, that if we just think about God, there can be a purity of joy there. But in terms of our participation in his goodness during this life on earth, well, frankly, our loves um, will help us not only have the joy, but also sorrow. And to, to be ready for that, you know, because if you don't want a life of joy or sorrow, don't care, don't love. Okay, but, so if you, uh, if you love a lot, you will have joys and sorrows. If you love intensely, especially if you love God, you will intensely, you will have spiritual joys and spiritual sorrows. Okay. Thank you. Other questions or comments? Yes. Oh, the Rwandan. Uh, yeah. Um, she has a strong devotion to the um, the sorrows of Mary, and so when she prays it, on she's amazing. Um, so she prays it with just the, the deep awareness of the sorrow. Um, and so what I'm wondering is, what we said before, um, my understanding is that there's also a there's a also a, a devotion where. By in each, with each sorrow, the experience of each sorrow, Mary is thought to receive the fullness of one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which then by the time that he's presently uh, in the tomb, she has a fullness of the Holy Spirit, but which enables her to be, have that forbearance to be standing at the foot of the cross. Yes. So, would you, yeah. you talk about the corresponding thing? Would you, be, would you pray the sorrows as sorrowful, or would you pray them as? Kind of joyful well, so people can do this in different ways. All right. So this is where the rosary, uh, uh, the rosary can be prayed in many different ways. And in terms of just thinking about Our Lady, sometimes people are, are hesitant about what you said. And I want to affirm, and it's very important, that Our Lady grew in the spiritual life. Right. So sometimes people will think about the Immaculate Conception, and she was perfect from the first moment of her conception. She never sinned. Yes. 
and she grew in the spiritual life. So all during this life on earth, you know, particularly in terms of carrying the cross, that she was growing in terms of receiving more and more the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Because otherwise, people can think of Our Lady as a statue. Okay, that she, that she came into existence uh, in St. Anne's womb, and she had that perfection, the perfection of a statue. Okay. Our Lady was not a statue. And she, uh, her heart, you know, the, the thoughts of many are laid bare in her pierced heart. And then to be able to see that, okay? So precisely in carrying the cross, she's able to accept more and more who God is. She who never sinned, she continued to grow in the spiritual life. She grew in charity. The, the sacred liturgy of the church um, has a prayer, um, one of the prayers of the Mass, uh, something to the effect of the, the birth of your son and the Blessed Virgin Mary caused her to grow in charity. Okay? And it's like, wow. Yeah. So Our Lady, um, uh, so during this, uh, a perfect wayfarer during this life on earth is someone who, who, uh, who is able to grow in remarkable ways. Right? Now then, to, when we think about the sorrowful mysteries, keep in mind that, that the Lord Jesus was able to see his father's face always. He says, my father and I are one. And so in his upper soul, he has this intense joy on his, in terms of his human experience of what we call the beatific vision, of, see, of seeing God. And that precisely, I think, because of this, he's able to suffer like no one else. So that the joy, the constancy of the joy, allows him to take upon himself our sin, our suffering, our sorrow, because he can handle it. For us, we may just want to shut down. You know, but, but Jesus, in a sense, never shut down before he died. That, that he was able to, as the catechism says, going back to, um, to Galatians, you know, St. Paul says, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. So the Catechism says he knew and loved each one of us humanly. And then to consider the joy and the sorrow for Jesus in the midst of the sorrowful mysteries. On the, on the night before he died, he, uh, uh, he celebrates that, that Paschal meal. Okay, So in terms of giving us the Eucharist, and he, he said, with desire, I have desired to eat this with you. With desire, I've desired. So that there's a fulfillment, a joy in this. And he came to save us. Okay, so, so that's where in terms of just the sorrow, and when you pick up your cross, you know, because otherwise, you know, when St. Francis says, you know, that's where you have the joy, is when you, when you have that, 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 that experience of the cross. Well, think about Jesus' joy in the cross. Okay, so other questions or comments? Yep. Um, on the earlier talk, okay. earlier talk, um, makes a distinction between, like, and that one reason that joy would not be continuous is if you had imperfect joy. Um, so what is the, I guess, what is the journey to the perfection of joy look like? Because I know joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but is it also kind of built for so St. Thomas asks if it's a virtue, and he says no. So it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, and we see that listed in Galatians, uh, as opposed to the, to the works of the flesh. And then it's an interior effect of charity. And the continuity is precisely in terms of not sinning. All right? So rejoice in the Lord always. But then also to be able to see how during this life on earth, there are all sorts of attacks and he wants also to be realistic and in terms of, uh, you know, when you love during this life on earth, there will be sorrows and sadnesses. Uh, but I think, uh, I think it's this understanding of a constancy of joy precisely in the Lord, whereby grace we can be preserved from undue attachments to worldly things, that we can have our loves well-ordered. You know, we're a jumble of loves, but God's grace can can order our loves. So that way, when we love the Lord our God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, we actually don't love other things less. We love them more 
precisely by being well-ordered in our love, that we, that we really can't, as opposed to using, you know, you can think about, say, a husband and wife. When they love each other in the Lord, and when they, when they don't, you know, if someone says, oh, you know, uh, I love her more than anything, and that would include God. Mm, that's not, no. you know, so that within this world, yes, but always, you know, that it's for the sake of God or in God. So that's why in terms of, of when you have that kind of love, then you can actually um, love, you know, love your spouse or, or love anyone even more strongly because you have a divine power at work in you. And then to be able to see that the spiritual joy can even allow you to lay down your life for your friend. And, yes. I think there's kind of like a common understanding that um, if you are not happy all the time, there's something wrong. And that yeah. if you, that the point is to seek the like optimal happiness and the stable happiness. Right. We talk about how like joy works in, and sorrow works in that. That's right. Okay, so it's unrealistic uh, to think that you're going to be happy um, in the full sense, even during this life on earth. Okay, there are all sorts of people who have a quest for happiness where that the, they want the fulfillment during this life on earth, right? And that's impossible, okay? So, uh, so to take the example of marriage, do not think that you know, if I just find the right one, I'll be completely happy. You'll be disappointed. And actually, you'll be disappointing. <laughs> Got it? Um, so, um, so this is where sometimes people think, oh, you just, you just need this, um, and that way you can be happy. God alone can make us happy. And actually, ultimately, it's only heaven, seeing him face to face, where, you, where um, he won't let go and we won't let go. Okay, so in terms of that kind of union in heaven. And so this is where, in terms of a spiritual joy, allows us to cry about sorrows. Um, all sorts of people have unrealistic notions and then they get confused, okay? And then, you know, we're rational animals. So in terms of our animality, you know, there could be chemical imbalances. Um, you know, people could have bad days. What spiritual joy does is it allows us to be rooted that no matter, in a sense, what we feel, that remember God is most joyful and he has no passion, or, or the angels have, have no animality, and they're, you know, they're in heaven with joy. Spiritual joy allows us to know, even if I'm having a bad day, um, even if, you know, all these things, you know, the, the one that, who should love me is not loving me properly, to know that God loves me. And what else matters? Really. Because otherwise, if you make conditions, I will be joyful or happy if blank, blank, blank happens. What you're doing is you're making your heart conditioned by the things of this world as opposed to being conditioned by the love of God that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. Do not let your heart be, do not let your heart have conditions for happiness or joy based upon the things of this earth. You will always be disappointed in one way or another. Okay, so you could have some things going well for a while. It just can't last. Because the world as we know it is passing away. And that's why even now, God wants us to know about the possibility of spiritual joy, which is based in him who does not pass away. Okay, uh, we have time for one more question. Yep. Um, a common theme that I think you mentioned St. Francis um, and some of the other saints that were mentioned is hope yes. in the Lord, like having that uh, theological virtue, but also humility. Yeah. Can you talk about the relationship um, and I guess the practicality of hope and humility and joy? Okay, good. Good, thanks. So in terms of hope, hope is that theological virtue which seated in our will clings to God who is good for us. So in the midst of the difficulties of our trials in life, that we then can see that God is good in the midst of our difficulties and that he, he, that he wants us to be happy. 
So hope then is that theological virtue uh, which, which really says, oh, God has a plan. He's good for us. And the ultimate plan in terms of eternity is largely about the resurrection and, and, and to be with the risen Lord forever in heaven. Okay, so to be able to see God face to face. And then humility then uh, is that virtue where during this life on earth, um, we uh, can have our sinful pride curbed. Okay, so this ultimate sin is pride. Okay, uh, it's uh, the ultimate sin, the chief of all sins is pride. And humility is the antidote to pride. So the Lord Jesus humbled himself. Uh, he humbled himself. And that's how we find our salvation. So that the joy then, uh, in terms of that humility, allows us to accept Jesus' humility. You know, um, come to me, all you who are weary and find life burdensome, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon your shoulders and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. So, so to be able to see that it's precisely in Jesus' humility that we then can accept him and know that this is overflowing to us. And just to put this within the connection of, say, John chapter 15, our Lord says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Just call to mind, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Because every bit of every bit, so to speak, of grace we have flows to us from Christ's grace. Christ, what's called capital grace, that he's the head of the body of the church. And so all of us then, if we have any grace in us, it's from participating in Christ's grace. If we have any spiritual joy, it's participating in Christ's spiritual joy. That, that, um, that all the virtues in terms of humility... Um, it's because of Christ's humility that is flowing through us. Uh, there are some you know, qualifications because he's the head, we're the body. But generally speaking, every good thing comes to us from the Father, through Christ, in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so then to be able to see how it's precisely by being in God that we then can have that fulfillment and that we need the virtue of humility. We need the virtue of hope to be able to, to see where we are to see the Lord is near now and that he has a plan for us to see him face to he face in heaven. So thank you very much. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth.